Well, good morning. We are on course for the summer Sunday school, and we are starting a little bit late this morning. So everything should feel just perfectly normal. I'll uh, start with prayer requests this morning. Well, it's good for the people of God to be content. I'll begin our prayer time with Psalm 25, and we will read verse 8 to verse 10. So Psalm 25, verses 8 to 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Father, we do call you good and upright because you are indeed good and upright. And as we saw this morning, we are to supplement by our faith that same sort of goodness and uprightness that you yourself possess. We are to embody it and to live it as we reflect you. We pray that you would forgive us for the times that we don't, the regular habits and patterns of sin that we fall into. But yet we thank you that you instruct sinners in the way and that you instruct us. We come here this morning seeking that instruction, that you would give us wisdom and guidance is our prayer. We ask that you would deepen our faith and our understanding of your word and of you this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to Deuteronomy, we will pick it up in chapter 2 this morning. Very brief review. After Israel left Sinai, they came to Kadesh Barnea. Israel was commanded to invade Canaan, but hesitates. And that hesitation leads to outright rebellion when they first refuse to enter the land. And then after the Lord tells them to turn and go the way of the wilderness, they refuse to listen again and now try to enter Canaan. It does not work, and they are demoralized in defeat by the Amorites who live in the land that they were supposed to possess. As a result, I will read chapter 1, verse 45. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. Because Israel refused to listen to the pleadings of her leaders, uh, Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, pleaded with them to reconsider their course of action and actually enter into Canaan. Israel refused to listen to them and instead went uh, the other way. Therefore, the Lord refused to listen to Israel's pleading. So here, uh, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, this is a, we'll, we'll run into this more next year when we actually get into what feels like more law. But one of the laws that uh, is upheld as the ideal form of justice is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Uh, this is the Lord doing that. Israel refused to listen to the Lord's prophets, thereby refusing to listen to the Lord, Now the Lord refuses to listen to his rebellious people. And that follows, or is followed by, judgment, which is what we come to in Deuteronomy chapter 2. So first, judgment follows, and 
even where judgment follows, grace attends that judgment as well. So grace and judgment will flow together here in chapter 2. One uh, contemporary overlay, though, Paul says in Colossians 1.28, uh, Christ we proclaim teaching everyone and warning everyone. Well, why the warning? Because the Lord's righteousness is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if we refuse to listen to the Lord, he refuses to listen to us. And so, uh, quite practically, a large portion of our work as Christians and hoping to raise up other disciples is warning. And that warning is not something to be left out. So uh, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll actually pick it up in chapter 1, verse 46, the last verse of chapter 1. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me, and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. That is the judgment, and the many days that they traveled around Mount Seir was over 1,300 days. So don't bypass the significance that is housed in that one little verse. 38 years we wandered around in the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, traveled around Mount Seir roughly 38 years. And that follows what the Lord said. That, uh, that happened as a result of their refusal. So if you jump back up into chapter 1, verse 35, the reason those 38 years were spent in futility is because the Lord swore in verse 35, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers. And so they wander around. Now, on the other hand, attending that judgment, there is grace. And I'll give you two quick examples of that. First, there is the book of Deuteronomy. Remember when this book is being written. It is 38 years after they refused to enter the land of Canaan. And it is after they wandered around Mount Seir for 38 years. The book of Deuteronomy is delivered by Moses after all of these events. Of course, all of this lies within the providence of God, but tickle your imagination for a moment. Would have the book of Deuteronomy been written for all posterity had Israel actually gone into the land of Canaan? Right, so whether or, not, uh, whether or not they entered, grace comes. And that grace is expanded, right? So, so Paul will say, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Well, indeed it did. And that grace has not only been for the people of God after the rebellion, after that evil generation was exterminated, it's continued throughout all posterity, and we have it uh, encapsulated for us in the book of Deuteronomy. So there, uh, grace number one, as uh, attending their judgment, that grace. And the second thing, we could go to Romans 11. This is the first of either two or three times that we will come back to Romans 11 this morning, so I would encourage you to keep a finger there. Romans 11, verses 25 to 33. Lest you be wise in your own sight, 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. The deliverer, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you, which is the Gentiles, Paul is addressing, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. So by Israel's rebellion, or we might even say in the case of Deuteronomy, by the rebellion of this generation, a grace falls upon the following generation that would not have otherwise fallen, which is they now have the opportunity to do what their forefathers should have done, their, their parents should have done. They have the opportunity to go in and possess the land, to dispossess it, because their forefathers didn't. And so it is with the Lord's working quite frequently. Where one fails, where there is sin, it abound, grace abounds, going in a slightly different direction, but it is, it is multiplied uh, many, many times over. Paul picks up on that pattern in Deuteronomy, and he runs with it in Romans 11. So that's kind of our introduction for where we are today. Grace and judgment running together as a result of Israel's rebellion and the Lord's reaction. We will look at verses uh, 2 to 8 now in Deuteronomy 2. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 2. We'll pick it up in verse 2. If you do have your handy little map with you, uh, that might be helpful. I'll leave that to you. Deuteronomy 2, verse 2. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Now the ESV and the NIV there express well the geographic reality of where they are. So in verse 1 it says, We traveled around Mount Seir. And then in verse 2, Three, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. When the text says Mount Seir, it really means the mountain range of the country of Seir. And that's brought out in verse 3. It is mountain country. It is hilly terrain. And the Lord says, you've been here long enough. Turn and go. But if you have the NASB or the King James, you will see you've been traveling around this mountain long enough. Uh, It's in the singular, and it doesn't bring out uh, the geographic region, but what it is doing is bringing out a theological parallel. Because what's happening here in verse 3 is a fresh start. Remember when Israel was leaving Sinai back in chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord tells Israel, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Verse 3 of chapter 2 and verse 6 of chapter 1 begin the exact same way. 
You've been at this mountain long enough. Turn and go. So just as Israel was sent away from Sinai, now Israel is sent away from their wanderings in the wilderness. So both passages begin with long enough, and both passages continue with the command, turn from this hill country. Turn from this mountain and go. So this is a new beginning for a new generation. And the big question that looms is, is the story for this generation going to end differently than it did for their parents? Will this generation obey the Lord and receive the promise? Now, there are some issues of geography and their route. We'll continue reading and uh, mention a few of those as we go. Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 2. You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, which is also known as Edom. And they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as the sole of your foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So in this command from the Lord, uh, we are told that they are to go northward through Edom, and they are given specific directions about what their conduct is to be like as they go. Now, figuring out their route is very complicated. And if you look at the map, if you do have one of those maps with you, you'll see two different gray dotted lines. If you look at the itinerary of their stops in Numbers, we're not going to actually do this because we don't have the time, but if you were to look at the cities of where they stopped in Numbers 20, uh, it would look as though they went around Edom, not through Edom. If we read Deuteronomy 2, verses 2 and 8, as we just did, 2 through 7 anyway, it looks like they went through Edom. So the question is, did they go around Edom or did they go through Edom? Because they're quite different, right? Uh, What you would face as a people is quite different depending on each one of those. Uh, Deuteronomy, though it makes it look like they went through, uh, so does Numbers 33. It looks like they also went through Moab according to Numbers 33. Uh, But for a variety of reasons, it's best to assume that they went through round. And what I mean by that is this. Remember that these people, uh, the Edomites and the Moabites, they are semi-nomadic people. They are primarily herders, not agricultural producers, though they do a little bit of that too. And what happens is, since there are no solid lines for their geopolitical borders, everything is in flux at any given time. So my family just uh, came back from a trip out west last night, and uh, when we go from one county to another county, there are signs that say, entering Pennington County, entering Minnehaha County, entering, uh, and you can just name the county. Um, Approaching Chamberlain, population X, right? 
So there are clear, distinct lines, invisible lines, but lines nonetheless, where one place starts and another place ends. And I want to give you a word of warning. When you look at your maps, the back of your Bibles, they're going to have those same lines like what we're accustomed to. But the reality is those lines don't really exist that way. Ours do, theirs didn't. In most cases. And the reason for that is many of these people were semi-nomadic, which means part of the year they live here, part of the year they live there. And where their uh, sphere of influence is depends on where the people are. And just think of it, right? Edom, Moab, those regions are named not because of the territory, but because of the people who live there. They're the Moabites. They're the Edomites. They're the Ammonites. And so you have Ammon. Um, You have the Amorites, because the Amorites live there. Well, where is their country? Wherever the people live. Wherever they happen to be at that time. And so uh, when, if you ever run into conflicts about, okay, where were these boundaries? Just note that in most cases the boundaries were pretty fluid. Unless there is a clear geographical line drawn. And what I mean by that is, is there a river? Is there a geographical feature that separates this section of land from that section of land? That's where you can usually draw a border. So in most Most likely what happened here then is Israel did travel through Edom, as Deuteronomy draws out, but the Edomites weren't really there when they drew through, so they weren't really a threat. So uh, we can imagine the Edomites contracting a little bit in their power and the sphere of their influence shrinking a little bit, and Israel traveling through the land that the Edomites would generally consider to be their own. But since the Israelites traveled far enough away from where the main population was, they weren't considered that much of a threat. Uh, So um, we'll, we'll leave it perhaps right there. But what we're in right now is Deuteronomy. And what Deuteronomy draws out is that the people appear to have gone through land that was typically occupied by Edomites. And so let's just ask the question, why does that matter? Why, why spend any time having this sort of discussion? Well, I'll quickly give you uh, three fast reasons for it. First, what Moses is emphasizing here is that Israel has no friends in the world. They can't say to the Edomites, may we pass through, and the Edomites just give way to them. Deuteronomy makes it appear as though that was almost the case, but that's not actually the case. Uh, The Edomites came out to meet Israel with an army, if we were to go back to Numbers. Uh, So when they were in Kadesh Barnea, Moses sent uh, delegates ahead and said, Edom, please may we pass through. And Edom said, no. And they said no so forcefully that they came out with an army. Deuteronomy bypasses all of that. What it does say is that we... What it ambiguously says is we went uh, by uh, from the people of Edom as we kept going. So uh, even though there's this code of conduct, do not contend with them. I will not give you any of their land. Uh, Moses summarizes their travel in verse 8, which we have not yet read. Verse 8, so we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road to Elath and Ezion from Elith and Ebion Gezer. All he's saying there is 
One way or another, the Edomites were behind us, which is good uh, because Israel is not a friend of the Edomites, or we might say more accurately, the Edomites are no friend of the Israelites. The second thing is that though God's plan was for Israel to enter Canaan from the east, Israel faced common obstacles that were not overcome. They were gone through. And how many of you have ever heard the story, I knew the Lord wanted to do this because he opened these doors, these things that shouldn't have happened, just happened. Everything fell into place and I knew the Lord was leading me in that direction. Well, that doesn't always happen, right? The Edomites didn't just disappear. The Lord didn't exterminate the Edomites before the Israelites went through what was the territory they considered to be theirs. Israel had to engage the Edomites. They had, couldn't uh, bypass the problem they actually had to deal with the problems that were in front of them in obedience to the Lord's call. And so it's worth noting that the way of obedience is not always paved. We sometimes have challenges that we simply have to deal with. And the third thing is that Moses writes as he does, which gives the impression, uh, the impression of success, in order to communicate that when we obey the Lord, despite the world's hatred and its challenges, the Lord prospers the way in which we go, and the Lord certainly does that for the people of Israel. So Moses relates how God prepared that way for them. Verse 4, They will be afraid of you, so be careful. Now what does that care look like? Well, that continues on in verse Five, do not contend with them. Why should we not contend with them? That's explained in the next line. I will not give you any of their land so much as for the sole of your foot. Why will you not give us any of the land? Well, that is explained in the next line of verse 5. I have given Mount Seir, which is the mountain range of Edom, to Esau for a possession. So, negatively, do not contend with them because there is nothing that I am going to allow you to be advantaged by. Do not contend with them. Positively, what are they supposed to do? Buy your food and buy your water for you and your herds. How many of you have ever been priced gouged at a tourist attraction? How many of you have ever been price gouged because the people from whom you're buying simply know they can charge what they want and you've got to pay it? Right? That's the position the Israelites are in. That's what the Lord tells them to do. Ancient Near Eastern code of conduct would have been this. Israel says to Edom, may we pass through. And Edom says, not only may you pass through on the highway, we will give you all that you need along your way. We will supply for you what is needed for you and your herds as you go. That's what the code of hospitality would have required of the Edomites. And the reason for that is we want good relationships with our neighbors. And by doing this, we're going to make them indebted to us. So that if there is something that we need someday, we can come a call in and say, Hey, remember when you went through? Yeah, we helped you. Now it's time that you pay that favor back and this is what we want you to do. So there's a shrewdness about that hospitality. Israel, on the other hand, is commanded the opposite thing. No, you 
pay for everything. You do not enrich yourself by them. In fact, you impoverish yourself as you go through. You take the price gouging, you take it on the chin, and you take it with a smile. Why? That is explained in verse 7. Because Yahweh, your God, has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're going in this great wilderness. These 40 years your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. If God can care for you in the wilderness for 38 years, and as Moses will say at the end of Deuteronomy, even the soles of your sandals didn't wear out. Your clothing didn't fade. Nothing went ill with you except I killed you. Nothing that you needed for material provision dissipated throughout these 38 years. If I can see you through that, don't you think that I can make sure that your way through Edom is successful? So Moses writes the way he does to the Israelites and for, for again, for posterity's sake, and he climaxes at the point of, you didn't lack a thing, therefore trust the Lord will see you through the people of Edom. He will get you through those challenges that lie ahead, even though he doesn't remove them for you. He will send you through, and in spite of your rebellion, he has blessed all of your going. All of the way you've gone, he has taken care of you, and you have lacked nothing. Questions or comments through Edom? That's why we don't grumble about it. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. The same story with Moab, and that really begins in verse 8. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Eleth, Nezian, Geber, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. Now the same code of conduct is going to exist for their trek through round Moab as it did with Edom. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. Now here's a, a parenthetical statement. What is important about this parenthetical statement is that it is almost certainly written well after Israel possesses the land of Israel. This, so this is almost certainly not Moses speaking. This is, um, you might say, a, divine, a divinely inspired editor making sure that the people who read it after Moses' time understand what has gone on there. So here in verse 10, the M.M. formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Amim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. And here's why I say what I said. 
as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So this is clearly written post-conquest. That should not trouble us in the least bit uh, when we uphold Mosaic authorship, by the way. So a couple of notes to make here. One is in verse 9. The Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them. So formerly it was do not contend with Edom. Now it is do not harass or contend. So there is an addition to this one. Now likely this additional command to interact peaceably with Moab Likely the reason that addition is there is because remember when this is being spoken or written, it is after Moab had hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Remember, they are on the cusp of entering the promised land. Balaam is a thing of the past. What Moses is emphasizing here is remember that we did not harass Moab and they still hired Balaam against us. So not only were we not antagonistic toward them, and we're emphasizing we were not antagonistic toward them. They were antagonistic toward us. Even though this is how we tried to deal with them. So that point I made earlier about Israel not having any friends in the world. That is uh, built upon here. At least for Moses' original audience as he writes this. Uh, as he emphasizes do not contend and do not distress them. So they are to go on in that way. Same code of conduct exists for the same reason. Going on with verse 9, I will not give you any of the, their land for a possession. Why? Because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. Uh, so you will have no advantage by acting in hostility toward them. Now this is the second time that the Lord God of Israel has insisted that he establishes the borders, not just of Israel, but the borders of all peoples. He decides when and where they will live. We will come back to that theme more in just a little bit. But I wanted to show you that here's already the second time it's brought up. Now, for the parenthetical statement, I want to unravel the ball of yarn that this might feel to be as we read it. So verse 10, the Amim formerly lived in Moab. The Amim are a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. So the Anakim uh, are like the Amim who had lived in Moab. Verse 11 explains that a little bit further. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim. I'm going to pause on that word for just a minute. The Rephaim is one of the groups of people that the Lord told Abram his descendants would dispossess. So out of the list of ten peoples that Israel would dispossess from their land and then occupy their land, the Rephaim are one of those groups. Not the Anakim, by the way. The Rephaim. These people are not... I believe to be considered a ethnic group so much as uh, the Rephaim are a type of people um, who 
were known to be very large of stature uh, and very formidable uh, people to fight. Uh, the reason I want to emphasize that is because this here is a sort of fulfillment of God's promise. Right? So those connected to Abraham, the Edomites and the Moabites, they have driven out the Rephaim, just as the Lord said would happen all the way back in Genesis 15. And if those outside the people of Israel, who do not have the promises of the Lord for success, if they were able to accomplish it, how much more should the people of Israel, who have been promised success, uh, be able to drive out the Rephaim and those who are intimidating? So like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Amim. So that is dealing just with Moab. Verse 11 here now dealing, verse 12, dealing with the Horites who lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed the Horites and destroyed them from before them. And the Esau, the Edomites, settled in place of the Horites, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So there is a little bit of background information. All of this is designed to stoke the Israelites' trust that the Lord will do for his own people what he's already did for pe- has already done for people who aren't even his own. If I have done this for them, how much more will I do it for you? Uh, one thing we can uh, think to in the New Testament context is when Jesus says, you know, the Lord sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Right? So the Lord's grace, his providential grace, is over all of these people. But if the Lord's care is towards those who are not his own, how much more does he care for you? Um, his, his own children. That is sort of what Moses is doing here for the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 2. So if he's done it for Edom and Moab without a promise, how much more will he do for Israel who have the promise? Now this section ends with a continuation of the Lord's command to Israel and how they are to go in and take the land. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So here we have a hard geographical border. Uh, There is a brook here that they must cross, and this is the border between Edom and Moab. So we went over the brook Zered into Moabite territory. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, and there's a little irony, they refused to go to war, but they are called the men of war, until they had all perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and, there were, and they were dead from among the people, then things continue on. So verses 14 to 16 create its own little uh, grouping all emphasizing the death of the rebellious generation. So out of that 38 years, who were those who died? Well, there is a census in Numbers 14 that was taken. Everyone who is 20 years old and up, every man who is able to carry a sword into battle, that is those who died. First, uh, we should not assume necessarily 
that all of the women died with them. You know, we, we assume the entire generation perished. Well, no, it was the men responsible for going to war uh, who were said to have perished, and no word is given one way or another about anyone else. So those under 20 and women were not counted in the census of Numbers 14, and therefore it's left a little bit mysterious when we come to Deuteronomy. Did the women really die? And just think about this. How powerful of a witness would it be for your grandma to tell you stories about how her children died because they rebelled against the Lord? And what an encouragement might that be to you to be obedient to the Lord's command as you're about to do something very, very, very dangerous, though the Lord be on your side. There could be a lot of value in that. But again, the text is silent. Uh, We don't need to emphasize it. Any questions up through that point or comments? All right, then we'll finish off with the meat of the text here in verses 16 to 25. This is preparing now to engage the enemy further north. So they have crossed through Edom. They are roughly in the territory of Moab. We will pick it up in verse 16. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are crossing, you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, which they're not actually going into Ammon, but Ammon will be beside them as they uh, continue north. As you, when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So here again, Israel is told to avoid conflicts, For the same reasons, the same rules of non-engagement still hold. I will not give you any of their land because I've already given it to someone else. Therefore, do not contend with them or bother with them. And this here is the third time that the Lord has said, I have given land to another group of people. Now, there is some background information that is helpful to know here in verse 20. So, again, we have another parenthetical statement. So, in verse 20, the land of Ammon is also counted as the land of, as a land of Rephaim. The Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites. And they dispossessed them and settled in their places as the Lord did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorium who came from Kaftor destroyed them and settled in their place. So what is going on here? Well, first in verse 20, just as in the case of Moab, so it is in the case of Ammon. They had intimidating foes to fight in order to have their land. But what is unique about verse 21 
is the claim that the Lord destroyed them from before the Amorites. That is a comment that Moses has not made in that way yet. But then uh, from Ammon, the case of Ammon, he projects that back. Because remember previously, it was the Edomites who destroyed the Anakim. Well, now who destroyed them? Well, here it said the Lord destroyed them. So who destroyed them? Edom or the Lord? To which we would say, yes. The Lord destroyed them. The Edomites destroyed them. They both run in tandem. They did it together. But they're from two different perspectives. From one perspective, the Edomites destroyed them. And if the Edomites did, you know, that's, that's just saying people migrate. Right? People engage in wars. One group of people wants to expand their land holdings, and so they fight another group so that they can have more land. And the people who are invaded fight back because they don't want to lose land. And so there appear to be natural migrations of peoples, and wars result in that. Right? Everyone's looking for a place. Everyone wants to survive in a harsh world, and there's limited resources. People are going to fight over them. But who determines the outcome? Well, the Lord destroyed the Anakim. Just as he did the Horites. The Lord is the one who determines who is going to prevail in this struggle. And not only in Israel's case, but in all cases. The Lord is the one who determines who will be in what land and when they are going to be there. So Acts 17, 26 Paul picks up on this. He studied Deuteronomy. Acts 17, verse 26. Paul says this in the Areopagus. He elevates who the Lord is. And as you're turning there, I'll start in verse 24 of Acts 17. The Lord who made the world and everything in it, being Lord or Master... Of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. But here's the line And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, which is allotted times, and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Who lives where they do and when they do? The Lord determines that. The Lord says this group of people will live here for this span of time and then this people will live here for this span of time. God determines the boundary lines of all people at all times and their migrations and the Lord gives the land. It is a gift from the Lord. Look, Notice how Moses talks about that. I have given it to the people of Esau For a possession. That's the same language used of what the Lord gives Israel in Canaan. I have given it to you for a possession. I've done the same thing for the Edomites in their territory. I've given the land of Moab to the Moabites as a possession. I've given the land of Ammon to the Ammonites as a possession. He has given it to all of those. So let's ask the question then, what advantage or what disadvantage does Israel have over any other nation in the world and the Lord's determination of their possessions? Well, the advantage is this. Israel is given her land 
on the promise, which is she has a unique confidence, or should have a unique confidence, that as she enters Canaan, Israel will be successful. The Rephaim, as large as they are, remember that was the reason they turned back, right? The people are huge there. They're taller than us. We we were like grasshoppers in their sight. Well, they should have a unique confidence that they will be successful in their conquest. The Edomites had no word of assurance. Israel did. And not only that, Israel should have the confidence that as long as she is obedient to her covenant Lord, her tenure in the land is permanent. As long as she obeys her Lord, her Lord will leave her in the land. No other nation had that promise either. And so Israel is given unique advantages, not only of the land in which she is given, and the knowledge that she's given it, but also in knowing the God who gave it. The Edomites don't know the Lord. The Moabites don't know the Lord. The Ammonites don't know the Lord. They believe their gods gave them their lands. They don't know the God who gave them their land. It's the God of Israel who gave them their land. But that also means there is a condition, and here we might call it a disadvantage. Whereas the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites go their own way, and they worship their own God, and they are not punished for it in the same way Israel is when she goes after other gods, that means Israel has a condition she must fulfill. She has to be faithful to the Lord, or by the terms of the covenant... She is removed from the land. Israel is faithful to Yahweh, or Yahweh takes Israel off as he had any other people at any other time. Israel's claim to the land of Palestine, like any other claim to divine promises, is not an unconditional claim. Israel cannot unconditionally claim the land of Palestine. It's given to her on condition of a covenant. Now, forwarding real quickly, that Israel possesses a parcel of land in the Middle East is a part of the Lord's providential governance. That there there is a place called Israel today is a part of providential governance. But it's like thousands of other historical migrations. What she has today is not part of the fulfillment of a covenantal obligation because Israel has been faithful to her covenant Lord. Romans 11. I told you we'd go back there again. Here we are again back in Romans 11. Verses 21 to 24. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So we'll we'll just pause there. But all of that to draw this out. What Israel possesses today 
is simply a matter of providential governance of the migration of peoples not connected to covenantal obligations. For this reason, severity towards those who have fallen. Is Israel following the Christ? As a people, are they following her covenant Lord? Paul says, no, they're in unbelief. And so, even as we look at things today, we are to take note of what happens in Deuteronomy, and it's this. Israel tells, God tells Israel, I'm giving you a piece of land, but even though I'm giving you this piece of land, you be respectful of the boundaries of your neighbors because I've given that land to them too. This isn't you just going in and taking what you like because I'm the one who gives you what you have. So the Lord here shows the theological reality of what is going on as he commands the people how to engage the neighbors that they are going to meet on the way. The Lord finishes his command in verse 24, so going back to Deuteronomy 24. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. So here we have a change of pace. Don't contend with Edom, don't contend or harass Moab, don't contend or harass Ammon. But now you're going into Sihon's territory, Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land, which has now been promised to uh, Abraham that Israel would have the land of the Amorites, begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. So what Israel has specifically been forbidden to do with the peoples up until this point, now they come to the Amorites, now contend with them and fight them in battle. Verse 25, why should they do this? This day I will begin to put the fear, the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under you, who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish before you. The last thing I have to note here is God's faithfulness to his promise. One of the themes that just simply runs throughout all of scripture, but Moses draws particular points to here, even in drawing out the people he does and where Israel is to fight and where they are to refrain. All of those are related to God's promises and the abundance of his grace. And this is how great that abundance is. Not only is God gracious to a rebellious people, He hasn't exterminated the Israelites. He only exterminated that generation who rebelled against him. That generosity overflows beyond the confines of the covenant to those who are related to those within the covenant. So uh, going up again to verse 19... I have given Ar to the sons of Lot for a possession. Moab was given to the Moabites, who were the sons of Lot, for a possession. Lot was the nephew of Abraham, not part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, given after he and Lot separated, but there is still some sort of family connection to Abraham. Do these people have any advantage by that connection? It would seem to be uh, some sort of advantage, Edom has even more advantage being a descendant of Abraham. 
So the Lord's grace spills over beyond the confines of the covenant to a degree. And if that's the case, how full is our cup who live within the covenant? And how great is God's grace and how faithful will he be to what he has told us? So when Israel comes to the Amorites, now it's time to pick up the sword. I told you this land 400 years ago. I would start giving over to you. Well, here it is. The day has come. Cross over the Arnon, the border between Moab and the Amorites. And as soon as you cross that border, it's time to engage in battle. I'm not even waiting till you cross the Jordan, the land that I promised. Uh, to have you start taking things over, it begins already now. Again, outside the covenant territory, they start conquesting land. That's uh, the, the breadth and the depth that Paul praises in Romans 11 uh, the, of the Lord's grace. Thoughts or questions over all of that? Well, one question I have is you mentioned how the, the, the first generation, of course, they died off. And you said, but perhaps, and I think you probably meant it more, perhaps the women. Because we don't know, women tend to live a little longer than men, maybe. Uh, that's maybe what you're thinking. Well, yeah, so there, there are a couple of things that go on. So if you read the, the narratives and numbers, um, the Lord exterminated the people of that generation, at least the men of war of that generation, which is what the text specifies, the same way he exterminated the Horites and the Anakim and other nations. And so if you read the uh, book of Numbers, you'll see a number of ways in which that happened, which included things like um, plagues and pestilence and uh, war, uh, they, they died for all sorts of reasons. In most cases, Korah is the only exception that I'm aware of where he and his whole household perished um, for rebelling against Moses. In most of the other cases, the text only specifies that the men died. But seeing how Israel is conceived of the army of the Lord, it's the men that you're really paying attention to uh, from that perspective anyway. And so, yes, the women are left entirely mysterious, don't know. And the text simply doesn't say, say for us. Good. All right. Well, uh, we will not meet next week. It, it will be July 3, I believe, next week. So we will be back in two weeks to pick it back up. Hope to see you then.